Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Matthew 21 starting with verse 28. And the last time we saw the parable of the laborers, and that was really a good parable about serving and serving for the right reasons. Um, this morning we're going to be in the parable of the two sons and also the parable of the landowner. Uh, and really, the bottom line in all this, there's a lot of information in the scripture, but the bottom line is that Jesus was trying to teach about about serving and about uh, being really obedient to the Lord, you know, not just giving lip service. And this was a setting 2,000 years ago in a very corrupt religious system by all accounts, even extra-biblical accounts. And, um, but we, it would be a, a travesty if we didn't make the application to ourselves as well. You know, we can look at this for some people in a different time and almost be detached from the Word, or we can be a part of it and realize that this is a timeless truth, like all of God's word. You know, do we give lip service to the Lord, or we really love him? We really want to live for him. Are we really obedient? I know there's a lot of people, a lot of reasons why people call themselves Christians. It could be cultural. It's a Western cultural thing. It could be familial. It could be an emotional thing, um, the fanciful idea of having a relationship with the Lord, or it's truly a relationship with the Lord. And we're going to take this in five parts. Just to give you a little background about what was going on at the time, context is very important because there's a lot of scripture twisters out there that'll just pull things out of context. So context, what was going on at the time? Well, Jesus goes to the courts of the temple. You know, this is the holy place. This is the spiritual seat. And he sees what I would describe from reading it as a flea market. You know, this is supposed to be a house of God, a place of prayer. And there's money, and there's tables, and there's people calling out, and there's animals, and, and it's just chaotic. It's like a business that's going on, and it's designed to rip off the people. And unfortunately, the, the thieves, as Jesus called them, were the religious echelon. You know, they were exchanging Roman currency for shekels and all these things that were going on. So that happens, and then after that, you're probably wondering why I'm holding a fig leaf, so I'm going to give you my answer now, <laughs> for those of you that are up close. Uh, so Jesus passes by a, a fig tree, and he sees beautiful, I have a fig tree at home, by the way, uh, beautiful, large fig leaves, but there's no fruit. Now, in, in that area, because of the climate, you had early figs and late figs. So the tree, as David Guzik would put it, was kind of engaging in false advertising. It had the appearance that it had fruit, right, but it didn't. So Jesus curses the fig tree and it withers. Very unusual for his ministry to use his power in that way, but it was emblematic of the nation, the people, and especially the religious system that had gone apostate. You know, this whole system God set up was to reach the world and show them the light of God. Uh, and they weren't doing that. Last thing that happens before we jump into our text is religious leaders see what he's doing. Like he, he seems to come from nowhere and he's doing all these things. And people are obeying him. Like he's got this authority. And the religious leaders say to Jesus, 
Where'd you get this authority from? You know, we want to know. We demand to know because they were, the, they were the leaders. They were the authority figures. So Jesus says, well, I'll answer you that if you answer me one question. And it's interesting because the answers to both questions was the same answer. And he said, John the Baptist, his baptism, was it from heaven or was it from men? Uh, he, he stumps them. Well, they know that they knew the right answer. They just didn't want to be obedient to it. So they kind of have a little caucus, these religious leaders, and they say, well, if we say from men, the people are going to be furious at us because they consider John a prophet. And if we say from heaven, then the natural response is, well, then why didn't you listen to him? So they go to Jesus and they go, we don't know. Jesus says, neither will I tell you where I get this, this authority from. Right? So you can see the stage being set up. And Jesus now gives this, these two parables. And uh, he kind of, you know, he really characterizes them as having an outward appearance, but really there's nothing inside. They really have no relationship with the Lord. You know? And again, we're going to make a lot of parallels to today. So jumping in at verse 28, it says, Jesus says, well, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go, work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it, and he went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, Now this is interesting because they're still there. They're really trying to trap him so they could get rid of him, so they could just continue their, you know, their aggrandizing scheme here, uh, their Ponzi scheme. So they, so they do listen, they do pay attention, trying to trap him, but they do engage him at times. Very interesting. So they said to him, somewhat religious leaders, somewhat part of the crowd, the first. Jesus said to them, I surely, I say to you, that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. You wonder why they crucified him. For John came to you, John the Baptist, in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. So the first out of five is the parable of the two sons. We get a little whiff of the parable of the laborers from last time, but Jesus is making a different point here. I think what I'd like to do when this is all over, maybe even do a class on the parables, because even Bible students, you know, to have a class and to say, all right, parable of the laborers, parable of this, parable of that. What's Jesus saying? Who are the characters? It's not easy. But Jesus makes a clearly articulable point in each one. So we, we can't miss that. In the parable of the laborers, I made the statement that salvation and serving go hand in hand, bearing fruit. God is always calling. He's always calling people into salvation and into service. So two sons are called to serve, but the overarching theme is obedience by action and not lip service. So the first son told the father, I'm not going. I'm not going to work in your, your fields. Later on, he regretted it. He repented. He relented. And he did what the father asked. He honored him. He had the wrong words, but he had the right action. The second son, sure, dad, I'll do whatever you want. Then he disrespects his father by not doing what was asked. He had the right words, but he had the wrong actions. I submit to you that God is concerned a lot more with what we do than what we say. And I'm going to tell you that when we try to reach people for Christ, 
we will be under scrutiny. People will look at us too, and they will watch our life. They will watch our actions, and they will make sure they examine that and take note of it before they listen to our words. And it's the same thing in church. We can come to church. We could lift our hands. We could praise the Lord, and that's awesome. We could read the Word. We could know the Word. We could speak Christianese, right? Have these little pithy sayings to each other, even loosely based on the Scripture. But are we doing what God has called us to do? Are we bearing fruit? So Jesus says, which one of these sons did the will of the Father? And they, of course they say, the first son, right? Now understand, he is speaking to highly educated they went to specific rabbinical schools, these religious leaders. So when he says that harlots and thieves and ripoff artists are going to get to heaven in front of them, that is highly insulting. But God was calling everyone at that time through John's preaching. John was setting the stage for the Messiah, Jesus, to come afterwards. He was softening their hearts. So the first son represents the first group of people. This is a group of obvious sinners who knew they were sinners. No question. You know, and, and we meet people like that today. Maybe there's a person here or two in this room. And there's hope for you. You know, I've heard people say, I got to do what I got to do. It's just where I am in life right now. Haven't completely given their trust to the Lord, but they feel like they have to survive. If it, if it crosses over illegal activity, if it crosses over ethical and moral boundaries, their attitude is, I have to survive. But they were convicted by the preaching of John the Baptist, by hearing the word, and they repented and they came to God. Amazing. First son, first group. The second group, or the second son, representing the second group, were the religious leaders that were deceived by their own self-righteousness. They scoffed at John's preaching, might even mocked him at the time. They didn't feel they needed to, to repent because, for, you know, listen, I'm from the tribe of whatever. You know, I do the, the temple sacrifices. You know, I help out the priests, you know. And they, they were deceived about who they were. But the truth is that this is, this is a lifestyle. You know, this isn't something we do to put on a show. I have to laugh because in, in my life, <laughs> from Sunday to Sunday, things happen. You know, it's, my life is just like yours. It can be chaotic at times, and God could bring me through things, and it was really interesting, I have permission to share this story, that my son comes home, he gets off the school bus, and I'm, I'm working. I got my shovel out, I'm moving a few yards of mulch, and it was wet and heavy, and the sun's out. It was really hot, like last week. So I said, hey, Josiah, I really could use some help. He goes, oh, I'm not really feeling good. So he goes in the house. I'm like, all right. Ten minutes later, he comes outside with a glass of water, and he goes, I, I felt bad, I want to help you, Dad. It was so cool. I said, wow, I'm just covering that on Sunday. But uh, I'm sure what helped was the fact that I, I said to him, the last thing I said was, it's okay, you know, your, your old man is out in the hot sun and <laughs> I could die of a heart attack. You know, parents, we do that stuff, right? So he's a good kid, though. <laughs> I said, can I, please, can I share this story? He goes, all right, you can. <laughs> okay, so continuing on, verse 33. Hear another parable. Jesus says, there was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard. And he set a hedge around it. He dug a wine press in it. And he built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. 
Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, Ah, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, very important, <laughs> they said to him, part of the, some of the religious guys in there, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruit of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind them to powder. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees, the religious echelon, heard this parable, his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. Hey, you guys are clever, good. <laughs> but when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. That's why the whole crucifixion was done under the cover of darkness, because the people really loved Jesus. They really loved John. And the Bible is pretty much tells us is because they were genuine. You know, they were real. And folks, you know, if we're going to win people to salvation, we need to be real. We need to be genuine. I would never tell anybody that Pastor Joe lives a perfect life and I never do anything wrong. It's, not, it's just not accurate. It's not real. So let's look at this parable of the landowner, two out of five. What do the symbols and the characters represent? Well, A, the landowner is God. That's a simple one. The landowner is God. B, the vineyard is the nation of Israel. Okay, if you look at Isaiah 5, if you're a student of the scripture, 1 through 7, I mean, it is word for word pretty much a parallel. Jesus pulls this out of Isaiah, and he, he makes a, a parable out of it, which God had already done through the prophet Isaiah. But the sad thing was, the, Isaiah the prophet said that the, the, the nation was starting to bear bad fruit, and God was not happy with that. Now, this is interesting. At the end, and I'll cover this, there's a little bit of a twist in that the vineyard changes, okay? It morphs, and God can do that with his symbols. In verse 43, you see it becomes the kingdom of God when he removes it and gives it to a different group of people. So we'll cover that. C, the hedge, the wine press, and the tower. It shows that God puts a lot of care into his people, right? Whether you're talking about the children of Israel in the Old Testament or believers today. Um, he put a lot of care. He wanted them to bear spiritual fruit. He didn't give them bad materials. He gave them good materials. You know, in the Garden of Eden, he gave Adam and Eve good materials. And that's why today, the arguments that people make, uh, so, uh, social arguments about you just keep throwing money at people, just keep throwing money at, at the problems, it's not going to fix the issue. Because God did this so many times with so many people, and they still blew it. Right? These are spiritual truths we need to understand. The answer is the Lord Jesus. Um, so let's look at the hedge. The hedge indicates protection, and God said that I, I would protect my people so long as they were faithful to me and they worshiped me. 
You know, this is a, is a relationship between God and His people. The wine press. Well, this was a place where if you had a vineyard, you'd take the grapes or the fruit or whatever and you would press it and you would get something out of it to enjoy it. All right? So the, the wine press represents that God expects fruit from His people. Brothers and sisters, He expects fruits from us too. Look at John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. He goes through this whole thing about this relationship between us bearing the fruit because we're tied into the vine. Very important to understand. And the tower, tower was very important back then because, again, you didn't have GPS and you didn't have reconnaissance planes. You found a high elevation and you could see what was going on around you because of your elevation point. The tower was a picture of watchfulness. And brothers and sisters, we need to be watchful about our own lives as well. You know, as Christians, sometimes we just go on and on and do things and, you know, we just think it, everything's just going to kind of keep flowing the way it was. We need to be in prayer. We need to be looking at things in our own lives that we have to root out. So watchfulness represented by the tower. And the children of Israel got sloppy and they let pagan influences come into their lives. And we have a decadent culture too. And it affected them negatively and they started bearing bad fruit and God wasn't pleased. D, the vine dressers. This was the spiritual leaders that were tasked to care for Israel's spiritual health, but they morphed. I'm going to do a little history here. Somewhere in the, the few centuries B.C., the first few centuries B.C., what happened was you had, well, the religious leaders became, they became greedy, they became um, oppressive, they became el elitist, they set bad examples. And what you had was your, your basic groups that God set up as good, the priests, the Levites, the elders, the leaders. If we've if we read the Old Testament, we're familiar with these terms. What happened was many of them morphed into six main religious groups. And you'll, when I say these, you'll say, oh, yeah, yeah. And again, you can look up your encyclopedia. You can go online, extra biblical sources. It's all there. These people existed. They morphed into the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Zealots. The Zealots were violent. The scribes and the lawyers and the Essenes. Now, Probably the, and there was, we don't want to paint with a broad brush. Um, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus were awesome guys. They were both Pharisees. Not all the Pharisees were bad, but their doctrine was toxic, and it affected the individual. So what happens is, now let's go back to the, the groups. The Essenes were more reclusive. They were known for their piety, their good works. They were known for not being greedy for money. They just existed on what they had. Um, what's, what's fascinating about them is, again, let's, let's bring history into this, the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you're a Christian, you need to know something about the Dead Sea Scrolls. It proves, well, we know that their God exists. We know that Christ existed. We know all these things, but this is how we prove things to the unsaved world when they say, prove it to me, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Read up about them. Fascinating. Oh, the Bible was written by men, and okay, 2,000 years later, they find the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, first few centuries and they, they compare the scripture in their word for word. These things were hidden until I think it was 1940, late 1940s. Uh, also, some believe that John the Baptist was in a scene. Again, this was a good group, right? Good people. So uh, we don't know that for sure, but John was kind of reclusive. Then he comes out into society and he's bold and he's on fire. What happens today? When you try to cut into the culture, right? We see this in 2017 doesn't matter who you are. You get shouted down. 
the media, academia, the politicians, they're all in cahoots together. You start standing up for Christ, they shout you down. John the Baptist, they try to do that to him too. He didn't care because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He, he was in the wilderness. And when he came out into society, he just wanted to fulfill God's mission. We need more John the Baptist today. Yeah, the guy was, want to meet him. <laughs> so, and what happened? These groups started to worship money, popularity. They were political, status. But let's be careful not to, again, look at that remote group of people. What's happened in 2,000 years of Christendom? Does God look at every organization and ministry and situation that says, oh yeah, we're Christians, do you think he's happy with it all? I don't think so. You can see wars and, and uh, sects, uh, yeah, sects and um, denominations that controlled whole countries, had armies and navies, engaged in bloodshed, right? Hypocrisy, uh, the love of money. And this is why people are turned off today. Sometimes I find that if I meet somebody on the street and I try to tell them about Jesus, I have to cut through all the layers of the onion first. But what about this? But what about that? Oh, my goodness. And it's a long conversation, but it's okay. I'm prepared. You know, I've done my homework. And I understand why they feel that way, because I was the same way. <laughs> it took me a while before I came to the Lord. Religion or the things of God can be a turnoff, but understand this, that Jesus never is. When we look at the church as an organization, or we look at ourselves as individual Christians, we're more attractive. The organization is more attractive when it reflects more of Jesus and not some of these ways that have crept in, this leaven. E in the symbols, vintage time and receiving fruit. God had expectations on the nation. He wanted to see spiritual fruit, and he was disappointed. Instead, the children of Israel, and in the first century, and over some years of Christendom, have reflected some of the pagan ways, some of the ways of the culture. Instead of setting the standard, they were the followers. Some Christians today, some they're followers. They follow, well, what is the... What is the academia saying today okay we'll follow that how many christians are bought into the lie of evolution because they're afraid of being called backward and anti-science well when you know science you understand that stuff doesn't just happen okay and that's another i've covered this extensively i'm not going to go into it now but another symbol f the lord's servants the prophets that god raised up to rebuke the leadership to rebuke the evil things that were going on in religion but they weren't received well you know, I mean, you can look at a lot of this stuff. How many cults have sprang up? Why? Because believers don't know their word. Why did anybody listen to um, know, Joseph Smith in the 1820s or Charles Taze Russell in the 1870s coming up with these crazy prophecies that never came to pass? Because they didn't know their Bible. When we don't know our Bible, we're susceptible to cultic teachings. Today, you can see whole ministries that are centered around money. You go to the church and all they talk about is money. Money, 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 money. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? What's, you know, there's a whole, a whole denomination that, that encompasses that and legitimizes that. It's ridiculous. Or those that want to continue their false hedge money on spirituality. Hey, listen, God's given you a ministry. Bless the people. Worship God. And he'll increase. Whatever, you know, whatever it is that he wants you to do. So going back to the, uh, the parable, verse 35 and 36, the vine dressers, right, responded by imprisoning 
killing, torturing God's prophets over the years. This is well documented. If you look at the Old Testament, if you're interested, God chronicles through 2 Chronicles 36 how many times God sent his prophets. Now, this is the Old Testament, okay? This is, the old, this is before Christianity even started. This pattern has been going on for a long time. How many prophets were murdered or uh, attempted murder or imprisoning? You look at Ahab and Queen Jezebel. We covered that last, last uh, Sunday, how many prophets they had murdered. Again, their own people. So this is the servants, right, in, in the parable. They're killing the servants. Verse 37 through 39, God lastly, symbol G out of all this, E-F-G, is his son. Surely I'll send my son and they'll respect him. Right? Jesus Christ is, is the last one to be sent. But what happens? Well, they kill him. They crucify him. Okay? Now, this goes back to our, my opening where Jesus, what does he do? Jesus is God in the flesh. He's put here for a reason. He's put here for a lot of reasons. The most important reason is that he came to die for our sins so that we could have everlasting life. However, there were other reasons that he came, and one of them was to see if the spiritual system was going to bear fruit. So he went into the temple, and he tried to fix things. Um, I, re I remember two portions of Scripture, early in his ministry and late in his ministry, where he went into the temple, and he did this. He overturned the tables. Maybe there was some from earlier ministry, and he goes, oh, here comes Jesus. It's going to get messy real quick, <laughs> you know. The birds, you know, flying away, the animals, you know, the oxen, right in God's, in the court of the temple, right? I mean, in the Old Testament, it talked about the actual beautiful temple with all its like little hidden closets and stuff and all the horrible pagan things that some of God's servants were hoarding in there. God was furious about that. But again, what happens in a building that's called a church? Now, some of you, if you've been around for a while, have seen some weird stuff, as I have. This isn't a church. This is going on in the church. This is being said in the church. So, you know, we, we have to look at all this, um, whether it's back then or today. So they say, basically, here's the son in the parable. Here's the son. Let's kill him and seize his inheritance. If we get rid of Jesus, we can go back to business as usual. The Romans didn't like Jesus because... Jesus was pulling the common person and they were starting to accumulate and follow him. That threatened the Roman sovereignty. The religious leaders hated Jesus because he was muscling in on their territory. He wasn't trying to take any money from them because he was pure, but he was ruining their game. He was ruining their scheme. So guess what? The religious leaders and the Romans got together. It was the perfect storm and they had the Lord crucified, but it fell right into God's hands because Christ had to die for, this, for our sins for us to have life. So, you know, when people try to thwart God's plans, he can always take something and turn it for his will. We can't outthink God. We can't outstrategize God. People try to do it, but it doesn't work. So let me read 40 and 41 again. Jesus says, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? Now they said to him, definitely religious leaders are part of this because he speaks back to them. This is a dialogue. He, you know, it's funny. It shows that they... Maybe they thought it wasn't about them at first. Maybe it was about those, you know, those prostitutes and those thieves and those tax collectors. And it just shows they really maybe didn't have a lot of mercy, right? Of course, God has a lot of grace. But they said, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to the other vine dressers 
who will render to him the fruits in their season. So three out of five is judgment and punishment, but the odd thing is that the really intelligent, super educated, you know, they went to all the school's religious leaders at first didn't realize he was speaking about them. But it wasn't long before they figure it out. And what happens? In A.D. 70, that whole system is destroyed. The courts, the temple, like there's only a little piece of the wall left. And, you know, you see that in Jerusalem and some go to that wall and they put prayers in there and stuff, but um, there's nothing left. It was completely wiped out. Uh, and especially in light of Christ's fulfillment, it's not needed anymore anyway because Christ came now to bridge that gap between a holy God and sinful man. So all the sacrifices and all the things that were done, just they're not needed anymore. Verse 42, Jesus says to the religious leaders, did you never read the scriptures? You realize what a tremendous insult that was? These people memorized the scriptures. Now I say read the Bible, and we all should be reading the Bible. Some read the Bible, know it really well, and take it out of context. Others read the Bible and decide, well, I like this, but I don't like that, so I'm never going to talk about that. That's why at Calvary Chapel we go through the entire Bible, because guess what? Some of the parts of the Bible are not my favorite part, but I'm tasked to be obedient and preach the Bible in its context, right? What did Jesus mean? That they never read it. He really meant that they were taking it out of context, and that's what they were doing. You know, they were taking it out of context. And you know what? I see it today. I hear it today. And instead of harping on, harping on the same names, I just want to read you a paragraph uh, from the Berean Call. Uh, if you're familiar with the Berean Call, it's a Christian publication. It's been out a long time. They get a lot of hate mail because they go really to the root of some things that are going on in churches and ministries, and, you know, it's, it, ruffles, it ruffles a lot of feathers. But he says this. It's gonna, you're going to laugh because you're going to start out with a name. He says, okay, in May of 2017... Second, third paragraph down, he says, Joel Osteen didn't produce the largest church in America by preaching sin and repentance. Quite the contrary. Consumer Christians, this is important, consumer Christians must hear what makes them happy or again, they're gone. The irony of the church growth movement was that its stated intention to woo the lost or the unchurched to church didn't increase their numbers by conversions. They simply enlarge their congregations by offering the most attractive programs. That increase, in fact, was drawn from smaller churches that couldn't afford the feel-good offerings, such as a video arcade for the youth, food court, theatrical programs, including Christianized yoga. Winning souls to Christ through conviction of sin and repentance has no place in church growth marketing schemes. Neither does a worldly approach solve a believer's problem that arise from living on this fallen planet. And again, and he speaks about um, even marital counseling, how the root problem is a spiritual problem. You can sit there all day with a couple, you know. He, he's, he does this and says this. She does that and says that. Back and forth like a tennis match forever. There's a root issue that has to be dealt with. So, in Jesus' time, there were those that try to gain big followings as well, but the bottom line is the false teachers were taking the scripture out of context. Verse 42, last few verses. Jesus said to them, did you never read the scriptures? And this is taken from Psalm 118, all the way back in the Old Testament, about 1000 BC. 
the stone, which is Christ, which the builders rejected, so the builders are also the vine dressers in this parable, has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruit of it. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken. On whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they get it. They perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. So four out of five is the warning. The warning. Because at the time that Jesus was speaking, the judgment hadn't taken place yet. You know what's beautiful about a loving God is he warns us. And he warns us. And he warns us. He did it in the Old Testament. He does it in the New Testament. Is warning, correction, discipline, love? Yes. Yes. Don't touch that hot stove. <laughs> Don't run into traffic. It's actually not love if you just let your, oh, look, this, this, there's a flame. I see he's going for it. He's going, oh, this is going to be good. Get out the video. Nobody would do that. That would be a really whacked out parent. Or look, he's going for the street. Uh, I see the traffic coming. No. Even if you have to discipline your young kids to teach them not to go out into the street because you don't want them to be maimed or worse, die. Right? So God also warns his people. And Jesus came and he gave a lot of warning and a lot of correction and they spurned it. They spurned it. A few, few verses here. Verse 42. Jesus takes Psalm 118 that prophesies his rejection but understand, Jesus is saying, I'm the key to everything. Now, if anybody here said that or I said that, you'd say, boy, you have a big ego. But this is God we're speaking about. He is the key to everything. You know, we look at Colossians 1. It says that even everything that was created, it wasn't created unless it went through Christ. Jesus existed before he came to the earth. Eternally God. Right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, the, right here, the cornerstone. He's the key to everything. Now, I have a few builders in here today. One up in the balcony, a few builders in here. And they know that the cornerstone is very important. So when you build a foundation, you can build the most grandiose structure that can ever be imagined. But especially when you start with the first corner of the foundation, it better be right. If it's too wide or it's too narrow or it's, it's lopsided, it has to be measured in three different ways. So Jesus says, I'm the cornerstone. Anything that you build has to be built on me. Again, he can say that he's God. So he was trying to make them understand that. What he said too was in verse 43 that the kingdom of God would be taken from you, meaning the religious system and, and the nation in, in a sense, and given it to a nation bearing the fruit of it. Very insulting, but very true. What happened is it was taken from Israel and it was given to a church that was mixed. Jews and Gentiles. It also was given to leaders, the apostles, who had no uh, degrees after their name. God was just going to move them by the Holy Spirit. And again, they were furious about that. Verse 44. Well, let me just go back a minute. So there, are, I say, when the kingdom of God is taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruit of it. So the kingdom of God is really the parable in the former, or the vineyard in the former part. So what happens is, basically God is saying, the things that I want, furthering my kingdom, being a light to the world, I'm going to shift it now and giving it, giving it to somebody else to give them a try. See, the shifting goes on. Okay. 
verse 44. I love this. He says, whoever falls on this stone or cornerstone will be broken, but whoever, whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. I don't know about you, but when I came to Christ, my life didn't become perfect. Uh, you know, I don't know if anybody here, you just started walking on water and uh, there was $100,000 you know, credited into your bank account. I don't know if that happened to you. I don't think so. But it didn't happen to me. What I found is my life became more challenging. But in order for me to be up here, God had to change me. And I, I fell on the stone, and I broke a few bones spiritually, but he mended them. They became stronger than they were before. But he didn't grind me to powder. You see what I'm saying? There's two ways we can face Christ, in adoration or obligation. We can worship him because we want to, and we maybe have a few cuts and bruises and broken bones spiritually because he has to change us. We're, we're clay, and he's got to mold us into something he can use. Or we can resist, 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 and then the judgment comes and it's too late. And for those, for that group of people, when the stone falls on them, they'll be ground to powder. It's too late. God has a window of opportunity, and we're in that window. It's grace, it's love, it's mercy. But sinful flesh cannot dwell with a holy God. So consider that this morning. Run, you, you run, you run, you try this, you try that, you run away from him. Coming to church once in a while, it's not going to do the trick. It has to be a relationship. Daniel 2.34, the prophet Daniel spoke about the stone uncut with human hands that will destroy everything not of God. There's a day that that's coming. Well, in verse 46, uh, 45 and 46, the religious leaders didn't take it to heart, and that's sad. I don't get angry when I talk to somebody about the Lord and they insult me or they laugh at me or whatever. You know, I'm, I'm beyond that. I actually feel bad for them. It's this, this truculent, this aggressive, this antagonistic attitude to the things of God. So instead of being convicted, they murmured against uh, themselves, I really want to lay hands on him, I really want to... Violence, but they didn't do it because the masses were there and they obviously revered Jesus as, as a prophet. Let's look at this in the fifth point, which is the takeaway. Is this dispensational? Is this directed at, at the time, contextually, at a religious system? Can we definitely make the application for what we've seen in Christian, Christendom over 2,000 years? Yes. But let's make this personal. We are either in one camp or the other. Right? We could be in the first camp, the first son, the first child, that initially we say no. We hear the word, we hear the sermons, some hear it, hear a street evangelist, and they... They just, you know what, I, I got my own life. You know, I'm, I'm in school, I'm working on my master's, you know, I'm, I'm really having, I've had people say that, I'm really having fun, I'm buying stuff, I'm doing, okay, that's, that's your choice. Eventually they're convicted, and in their heart, the Holy Spirit's working on them, and they're not really fighting it, and eventually they become his. They learn to love God. So even all those things they said in the beginning, they change, like the prostitutes and the tax collectors and those people back then. They become a little bit broken from falling on the cornerstone, but God mends their wounds. 
Their self-directed life starts to become a God-directed life. They're convicted by the Holy Spirit. They're sealed by the Holy Spirit. And before you know it, they're a changed person. Salvation, serving, what can I do, Lord? I want to see other people saved as well. Or we can be the second group. The son, the daughter, the child who thinks they're fine. They're part of a religion or a denomination. Surely God's pleased with me. You know, I, I've been in a lot of Calvary chapels, and some Calvary chapel people get weird too. It's not what we preach. And they have this attitude that they're part of a Calvary chapel, so they're good. Or they're part of a really big Calvary chapel, so they're even better. Stupid, quite frankly. I don't say that word from the pulpit that often. We can convince ourselves, I'm generally a good person. I don't need to be told to walk with Jesus. I don't need to be told to bear fruit. And you're right. I'm not your master. I'm not going to tell you anything. I'm just going to tell you what the Word says. You do what you want with it. They give more lip service than they do obedience. They trust in their own self-righteousness. I'm generally a good person, you know. I haven't killed anybody. Well, a lot of people are going to be saying that in the judgment. I don't don't want to see it. (laughs) But when judgment comes, it's going to be too late. They're going to be ground to powder. I don't know about you, but I definitely want to be in the first camp. I know what I was saved from. I knew what, I was like those people. I knew what a grievous sinner I was. I did run from the Lord for years. But now I'm saved. Not through my own efforts. I'm here standing before you by the grace of God. It's through no effort on my own, through no merit. So my question is, before we close, let's not make this about those people 2,000 years ago. Brothers and sisters, are we giving God lip service? Or are we truly obedient to him and truly have a relationship with him? Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m., And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.